covenant theology is the dominant theological system of most mainline Protestant churches and maintains that God has replaced the Jewish people with the church. On the basis of two or three covenants that are found nowhere in the Bible, it claims that Christians are now God's chosen people and that the Jewish people have no claim to the land of Israel. When examining this theology, what matters most is whether it can stand when tested by Scripture. It cannot. Now for our host, Bill Petrie. I'm going to ask you to do something different today. I'm going to ask you to actually take notes. I want you to jot down the verses that we use and take really good notes because today's topic is a topic that is crucial to understanding your Bible. Covenant theology is the dominant theological system of most mainline Protestant churches. It is a system of theology that interprets the Bible's philosophy of history through the lens of two or three covenants and is founded on replacement theology, which maintains that God has replaced the Jewish people with the church and that Christians are now God's chosen people. As a systematic theology, it attempts to explain God's purpose for history. Why are things the way they are today? Why were they different in the past? Why was there a time when there was no government on earth? Why was there a time when God gave the law to a particular group of people? Why is that system of law not applied throughout the world today? Systematic theology must make sense of the progress of Revelation. Why did not God give the epistles to Old Testament Israel? Why did he wait to reveal those after the church began? Theology must provide a unifying principle that connects these historical differences with the progress of Revelation thus providing answers for the past, present, and future. Most important, a valid philosophy of history will answer these questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? Let's talk about the facts. Covenant theology's basic premise is that in eons past, God determined to govern all of history on the basis of three covenants. Although, to be fair, some covenant theologians will combine two of the covenants into one. These are the covenants of works, redemption, and grace. The covenants of works. According to the covenant theologians, the covenant of works was established between the creation and the fall of man. Covenants are formal, legally binding agreements in which both parties have obligations. The covenant of works 
supposedly was established between God and Adam, in which Adam is God's representative head of the human race and acts for all his descendants. Covenant theologians argue that Adam's obligation was perfect obedience to God. God's obligation was to provide Ionian life in exchange for perfect obedience. Adam's penalty for failing to keep his part of the covenant was death to both Adam and his descendants. Where do we find this covenant in the Bible? The simple answer is, we do not. It is not in the Bible. Covenant theologians infer these covenants based on certain scriptures, including the threat of death for eating of the tree of knowledge in Genesis chapter 2. There must be a covenant, they say, because God provided a warning and a penalty. And I am not joking. That is the logic that they use. The covenant of redemption. This covenant supposedly was established before creation in eons past between God, the Father, and the Son, in which the Father made his Son the head and redeemer of the elect. The Son volunteered to take the place of those whom God gave to him, the elect, here on earth. The Son's obligation was to become human under the law, live without sin, and willingly take the elect's punishment on the cross. The Father's obligation was to resurrect the Son and give him numerous seed, all power in heaven and earth and great glory. Again, I ask, where is this covenant in Scripture? And again, the answer is that it is not there. It does not exist. Covenant theologians claim it is implied based on God's promises and the Son's willingness to go to the cross. But that, my friends, is a mighty big leap. It is a huge jump, especially considering there is no verse, there is no passage in Scripture that substantiates such a leap. The Covenant of Grace Some covenant theologians will combine the covenants of redemption and grace. They are uncertain when the covenant of grace was established. Some argue it began with the promise of redemption in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God told the serpent he would bruise the serpent's head and that the serpent would bruise the man-child's heel. Others argue it began with the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In the covenant of grace, God the offended makes a covenant with the elect sinner, 
the offender. The elect sinner's obligation is to accept the promise of salvation willingly, agree to be a part of God's people, trust in Christ for the rest of their life, and commit to a life of obedience and dedication to God. God's obligation, then, is to provide salvation through faith in Christ and Ionian life to all who believe. Again, there is no reference to this covenant in the Bible. Covenant theologians argue that it is implied in the I will be your God passages throughout the Old and New Testaments. These three covenants constitute what is known as covenant theology. They define history's ultimate purpose as glorifying God through the redemption of elect man. The shortcoming of this philosophy is that it presents a human-centered view of history. The glory of God is summed up only through the redemption of man. The covenant of grace becomes the unifying principle for history in which history is understood in terms of God's redemption of man. If you want to understand what happened in the past, you turn to the covenant of grace. If you want to understand what is happening now or in the future, look at the covenants of grace and redemption. Dare I say that there are numerous flaws with such a theology as this. When everything is implied, there can't help but be flaws. There are several problems with covenant theology. First, its goal for history is flawed because it only explains God's purpose for elect man. It does not begin to touch on all the other programs God has carried out and is carrying out in history. For example, if God is the one true and sovereign God of this universe, he will restore the universe to its pre-fall condition according to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28 and Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Covenant theology provides no explanation for this aspect of history, nor does it provide reasons for God's dethroning of Satan as ruler of the earth, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, or for re-establishing God's theocratic kingdom on earth, according to Revelation chapters 19 and 20. Second, it is a human-centered theological system with an inherent weakness for humanism. Who is the God of humanism? It is man, in the belief that ultimately all answers a lie in man. A theological system that believes the glory of God 
is centered in what God is doing with man ultimately is forced to focus on man. Add to that fact a hermeneutic that spiritualizes the words of Scripture, reinterpreting the literal into something figurative, and you have created a platform for humanism. History bears out that liberal modernist movements have flourished in mainline Protestant covenant churches. And that is because they are focused on humanism. A further problem is that the unifying principle of covenant theology is too narrow. It deals solely with man's redemption. It does not include God's plan for the redemption of all creation, nor does it provide enough answers for what God is doing here on earth right now. Furthermore, it diminishes the true covenants recorded in Scripture, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenants, to mention four. Another covenant of theologies serious flaws is that it denies the distinction between Israel and the church. It redefines the church as all covenant people throughout history. Therefore, the church begins with Abraham in Genesis 12, rather than in Acts chapter 9 with the salvation of the Apostle Paul. And Old Testament Israel no longer refers to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Old Testament Israel gets redefined as the covenant people. The people of faith in the Old Testament no longer is it physical descent that makes one an Israelite. It is faith in God. To accomplish its goals, Covenant theology uses two methods rather than one. To interpret scripture, another serious flaw. Covenant theologians use the historical, grammatical, literal method of interpretation for most of scripture, including all prophecy that has already been fulfilled. However, when it comes to unfulfilled prophecy, they turn to a different model, an allegorical, spiritual one that enables them to redefine Israel and make it into the church rather than the Jewish people. They also changed the millennial kingdom from a literal, future, 1,000-year period into the current church age. This belief is referred to as amillennialism or postmillennialism. Because it is built on replacement theology, to remove replacement theology from covenant theology would collapse the entire system. It would force covenant theologians to accept that God has two distinct programs, one for Israel and one for the church. Covenant theologians 
would have to define the church as beginning at a different point in time than it actually did. And we know that the church begins with the Apostle Paul and that that church is really a separate and distinct entity from Israel. And I'll have more to say about this a little bit later. They would also have to accept a literal future time frame for Daniel's 70th week and the millennium. To accept this would actually turn them into a Bible believer and thus turn them into dispensationalists. Covenant theology is the dominant theological system of the overwhelming majority of Protestant churches and maintains that God has replaced the Jewish people with the church. This is based on two or three covenants, as I have mentioned, that are nowhere found in the Bible. It claims that Christians are now God's chosen people and that the Jewish people have no claim to the land of Israel. When examining this theology, what matters most is whether it can stand when tested by Scripture. It cannot. What God's Word actually says. God's word says that the church began after Jesus Christ was here on earth. Jesus Christ himself states in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build future tense my church. Christ was looking to a future day when the church begins. Clearly, it had not yet begun, or he would not have used the future tense. So, there must be a church that begins after Matthew 16. And in fact, the body of Christ, the church of this present administration or dispensation of the grace of God, begins with the salvation of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. In order to see this, all you would have to do is read two passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 10, and 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 states, all believers are put into the church through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God's word distinguishes between Israel and the church. In the Old Testament, Israel was a nation. In the New Testament, the church is never called a nation, but rather it is referred to as a body. Saved Jews in the Old Testament are never called the church. 
but they are part of the church, which is Christ's body after the salvation of the Apostle Paul. For example, Paul said, Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God in 1 Corinthians 10.32. The words Jews and Greeks encompass all the unsaved or unredeemed. The words church of God refers to the saved, which includes both Jews and Greeks. God's word says, there will be seven years of tribulation following a time frame of intense persecution. The church will be raptured at the end of that seven-year period of intense persecution. Covenant theology claims there is no need for the tribulational period and no need to restore the nation of Israel and bring it to repentance because God is finished with Israel. According to covenant theology, there also is no reason for God to judge the Gentile nations for their treatment and rejection in idol worship. Scripture begs to differ. Paul taught, that the church will be caught up before the wrath of the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul spoke of our waiting for God to send his Son from heaven, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath. <clears throat> the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, is a literal seven-year period of time, according to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. The Antichrist will usher in that period by entering a covenant with Israel. Divine judgment will flood the earth. Revelation chapter 6, verse chapter 6 through chapter 18 explains God's twofold purpose to punish the, the Israelites' idolatry and to bring Israel to reconciling faith in the Messiah. The prophet Jeremiah referred to the great tribulation as the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. He said, Jewish men will hold their loins like women in labor because of the great trouble on earth. Christ referred to the time as great tribulation the greatest trouble the earth had ever seen in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. Unless God stopped it, he said no one would survive. It will come, culminate at the battle of Armageddon, according to Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 17, and Revelation chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, in which Satan, 
will bring the armies of the world against Israel to destroy the Jewish nation. Then Christ himself will return at the second advent to deliver Israel, according to Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, and Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. God's word promises that the seed of David will rule from a literal throne for a thousand years. Covenant theology, of course, sees no reason for any of this. Covenant theologians have developed two views that spiritualize and allegorize the texts. The first is amillennialism. Augustine developed it about 400 years after the church began. It maintains the church age merely continues until Christ returns to judge all men and then take believers to their eternal future. The second view is postmillennialism. It takes what it considers to be a more positive outlook. The church will continue until the entire world becomes Christian, thereby opening the door for Christ to return to take all believers to the new heavens and new earth. Both these views are contrary to the explicit word of God. Six times in the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 20, there are references to the thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. God promises to establish his kingdom on earth with the Messiah sitting on the throne to rule over Israel. Just read Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. He will rule over the nations. Psalm 72, 8 through 11. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And Zechariah 14, 9. The Bible says that Messiah will govern as God's king, God's representative, to do God's will, according to Psalm 7, verses 2 through 8, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, and Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Since the time Adam fell in sin, there was no qualified human representative to administer his rule until Jesus himself came. When Jesus returns, his purpose will be to reestablish the theocratic kingdom on planet Earth. The covenant of peace is called a time of restoration of all things, a season of refreshing, according to Acts chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Christ referred to it as the time of regeneration in which he will restore the environment to its pre-sin condition. He will do away with droughts, wars, 
pestilence, disease, and illness and bring the world back to the way it existed before Adam sinned. All you need to do is read the following passages. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 through 9. Isaiah 33, 24. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 55, verse 13. Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 25 through 29, and Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 1 through 12. Covenant theology is a lie, based on pretend covenants that are found nowhere in Scripture. However, the Bible does have covenants that are clearly defined. They include the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. We do not have to say that God implied these covenants. They are all recorded in Scripture. They are clearly defined in Scripture. They were initiated by God. They were given to the Jewish people and to the Jewish people alone. And they see their ultimate fulfillment through Israel. They also are unbreakable because their fulfillment is not based on Israel's obedience, but on God's faithfulness. And they are Eonian covenants. Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, and Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11, are two such passages that show this truth. These covenants guarantee that Israel will be restored to the promised land as a nation and its place of blessing. Someday, all of Israel will be regenerated. The Messiah will return to establish God's millennial kingdom on earth and will rule from his throne in Jerusalem at some point in the future. And Israel will be the most blessed nation on the planet at some point in the future. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 61, verses 4 through 9. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 20. In Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, all speak of the reality of Israel being restored and in the land and receiving these blessings. All this will happen because God clearly says so in his word, and his word will endure throughout the eons. If replacement theology is true, then certainly God has an opinion about it. One he states clearly and teaches visibly in Scripture. Conversely, if it is not plainly taught, then replacement theology is fictitious 
in the creation of men. Replacement theology maintains that because the Jewish people rejected Jesus Christ, God has replaced or superseded ethnic Israel with the church and punished them by rescinding all of the covenant promises he gave them. It claims, one, the church began with Abraham in Genesis 12. Two, the church is merely a continuation of Old Testament Israel. Three, the church is true or spiritual Israel. And four, true Israel in the Old Testament was comprised of Abraham's spiritual seed, not physical descendants. <clears throat> Replacement theologians also claim we must first understand the New Testament before we can understand the Old. The New Testament, they say, teaches us how to interpret the Old Testament. This method enables them to redefine Israel to mean Abraham's spiritual descendants only. However, interpreting Scripture this way ignores the progress of God's revelation and implies that people who had only Old Testament revelation could not have understood it. In other words, it, re it rejects the idea of progressive revelation. Replacement theology also conveniently manages to uncouple God's covenant promises from his covenant curses. The church somehow inherits all the promises to Israel, but the Jewish people, or ethnic Israel, keep all of the covenant curses. This uncoupling is quite a miraculous feat. Since the replacement church sees itself as a continuation of Old Testament Israel, it applies portions of Old Testament law to itself while ignoring important teachings from the pen of the Apostle Paul about the relationship of the church to the law. Finally, replacement theology teaches there is no future for a national Israel. God has thoroughly rejected Israel and no longer has a place for it in his plan for the ages apart from the salvation of individual Jewish people. They are no longer his chosen people. There is no future 70-week prophecy. There is no literal millennial kingdom of God on earth. Replacement theology is the historical position of the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches and the common position of the Reformed and the overwhelming majority of covenant theology churches. Unfortunately, it has fueled anti-Semitism for 1,800 years, and we see the results of anti-Semitism on college campuses today. It has been said that more anti-Semitic acts have been committed in the name of the church than by all other groups combined. 
And this is because, again, the church views Israel as something that is not important. Since Israel did not reject Christ until the Gospels, we would expect replacement theology to be taught at least in part of the New Testament. Using a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation, we would expect to find clear, concise statements that God has rejected Israel, definitive passages that teach that the church has replaced Israel, God's declaration that he has excluded Israel from the Old Testament covenants. But we would also expect to find a total lack of New Testament verses that speak of national Israel's future in God's plan. Speaking to a Jewish audience, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Replacement theologians say this passage teaches that Jesus said, one, get his permanently rejected national Israel, and two, the nation to whom the kingdom of God will be given is the church. On the surface, this explanation seems somewhat reasonable. However, close scrutiny shows otherwise. Throughout the first part of his ministry on earth, Jesus preached, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He offered the restored kingdom of God to Israel if the people repented of their sins and accepted him as their Savior and Lord, but they would not. Later, Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and, and stones those who are sent to her. You shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he states in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and 39. Although this passage teaches that Israel will be judged, it concludes by promising a future day when a new generation of national Israel will repent and accept him as their Messiah. If Matthew 21.43 taught that God had rejected Israel, then Jesus would not have taught later that a future Jewish nation will accept him. Therefore, Matthew 21.43 is not implying that God has permanently rejected Israel as his people. Instead, it is implying that God is forming a na new nation of Israel amongst the believing Israelites and casting out the unbelieving Israelites. It is still a Jewish nation comprised of Jewish people. Nowhere does scripture define the church as a nation. It teaches that the church is composed of people from many nations. Christ's use of the word nation in Matthew 21, 43, refers to the future generation of Jewish people who will accept him and in fact are referred to as Jesus' little flock. 
Christ chose the word nation rather than generation because he knew the Jewish people would soon be scattered. And he wanted to note a future day when Israel would again be a nation, when they would accept him as a Messiah, and and he would usher in a restored kingdom of God to them. Far from teaching replacement theology, Jesus emphasized that because the Jewish generation alive during his first coming refused his offer of the restored kingdom, God would take the kingdom from them and give it to the believing remnant within the nation. And he would form his nation with their believing remnant. One of the most often quoted passages in defense of replacement theology is Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Replacement theologians say Israel of God refers to the church. Their argument revolves around the Greek word chi that precedes the words upon the Israel of God. Chi is most often translated as the word and, but they say chi is an explicative case. What follows explains what came before and therefore should be translated even. This change makes Israel of God refer to as many as walk according to this rule, meaning Christians. They also say Paul taught in Galatians the unity of all ethnic believer groups. Therefore, the words Israel of God refer to all believers, that is, the church. However, the explicative case of Kai is extremely uncommon usage and is not supported by context or grammar. The more commonly used and to connect the words Israel of God with the first half of the verse is grammatically correct and it makes perfect sense. In Galatians, Paul defended salvation by grace through faith alone. He spoke against the Judaizers who taught circumcision was required for salvation. They added works, for instance, circumcision, to faith. When Paul said, as many as walk according to this rule, he spoke of those who walked by faith alone in Christ alone. His use of Israel of God contrasts the Jewish people who believed in Christ alone with the Judaizers who taught one must have faith plus works to be saved. We have to understand that the Apostle Paul, literally speaking to the church of this present dispensation during the Acts period, when there is a transition away from the nation of Israel to the body of Christ. 
God is interrupting his plan with Israel. He hasn't ended it. He hasn't ceased it. He's interrupted it and will resume dealing with it at some point in the future. In all other Pauline passages, the word Israel refers to national or ethnic Israel. It is highly unlikely he would use Israel here to refer to the body of all believers and use it in a different sense than he has in every other usage that he used. Paul prayed in Galatians 6.16 that God would bless all who put their faith in Christ alone for salvation and that he would especially bless those individuals. He also asked that the Jewish believers who were distinct from the Judaizers would also be blessed. This verse does not say the church has replaced Israel. And even if one accepts the replacement explanation, which is weak at best grammatically, the most it says is that Gentiles are included with Israel. Replacement theologians also try to use Galatians 3.7 and Galatians 3.29 to bolster their position. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham in verse 7. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise in verse 29. They maintain the words sons of Abraham and Abraham's seed imply the church has become true Israel, concluding that all believers are spiritual Jews. They tell us Abraham's seed means believers are related to Christ, whom they say is the true seed of Abraham. Thus, the church, in their mind, is true Israel. However, it is possible to be Abraham's seed or son, but not Jewish. Ishmael was Abraham's son, but he was not Jewish. In Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul taught that Abraham is the father of both the uncircumcised Gentiles and circumcised Jew. Some of Abraham's descendants are Jewish and others are not. Abraham himself was not Jewish. He was a Gentile from Ur of the Chaldeans. If he had been Jewish, then all of his descendants would be Jewish. Yet only the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are Jewish. It wasn't until Jacob that God bestowed the title of Israel after Jacob wrestled with God all night in Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 30. Galatians 3.7 and Galatians 3.29 do not say Israel has been replaced. They merely teach that people, whether Jewish or Gentile, who put their faith in Christ become partakers of the spiritual promises God made to Abraham. And what was that promise? 
that there would be a seed who would come, who would bring blessing to all people. And that seed is identified for us in Galatians 3.16, is Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ bring blessing to all people of the earth? And the answer is yes. In fact, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 tell us that God will at one time again deal with Israel. Does he not say that all Israel will be saved? He's speaking of a nation, folks, because he's contrasting it to the time of the Gentiles. Covenant theology is a lie. It is a theology that was developed by Satan to take away the literalness of the Word of God and to cast doubt on what God said. Do not believe it. Do not buy it. God says what he means. And God is faithful to what he promises. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.